I want you to think back for a second to the first remembrance, the earliest remembrance that you have of ever having committed a sin in your life. Yeah, that's a, that's a like, wow, really? Kind of a moment. The earliest recollection you have of committing a sin in your life. You got it in your mind? Do you remember when that was? I'll tell you the earliest recollection for me uh, is I was, I was uh, at home one day, and my mom took me by the hand, and she walked me about three doors down or so from our house where we were living, I don't know, what, 100, 150 feet, down to a little girl's house who lived those three houses down because I had taken something from her yard. It was like, a, I don't remember what it was, like a toy or a bucket or something along those lines. And my mom took me down, took me by the hand, marched me down there, and uh, I think I was like 17. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was probably four years old or so, I guess, and walked me down there to give that back. And I still remember that. I mean, it's vague and it's a little hazy, a little fuzzy, but I still remember being confronted with the fact that I had done something wrong and I had to do something about that. Now, for you, you may think back and there may be a remembrance that comes to your mind when I ask you, can you remember the first recollection of having done anything wrong, of committing a sin, you may remember some of those days. You remember perhaps saying something to your mom and dad and you got in trouble for it. You may remember having to go back to the store and it was your dad who had your hand and uh, you had to go to the store clerk and say, I took this pack of gum and I wasn't supposed to and your knees were knocking and your teeth were chattering. You may remember all the way back to when that was. Chances are, if we're honest with ourselves, we can remember pretty far back and we can remember that first time, really, when we understood and we, we got it, that we had done something wrong and we were accountable for that. Now, just, just kind of pause at that moment and then fast forward to where you are today and just imagine how long that list must be now, all these years later, of all the things that you've done wrong, of all the things that you've done where you knew you fell short, you knew that you shouldn't have done it, you knew that you shouldn't have said it. For me, my list is longer than I would ever want to own up to. And it's probably the same for every one of us. We've got a pretty long list, don't we? Of things we've done wrong, of sins we've committed, of areas where we've fallen short, of things that we would do differently if we had the chance, and some stuff maybe that we still wouldn't do differently because our hearts are still the same as they used to be. You know, in the first century, there was a, a little practice that took place. Whenever you borrowed money from someone, it was customary 2,000 years ago to, uh, to write out a certificate of debt in your own handwriting. If you were the debtor and you were borrowing money from a lender, uh, whoever it may have been, uh, you would, in your own handwriting, you would write out your debt. You would put your name and you'd put what it was that you owed, and there would be irrefutable evidence, evidence that could not be argued away because there it would be. If ever it came to a discussion, a confrontation, there in your own handwriting would be your ownership of the debt that you carried before this person. It was called a certificate of debt, and it was customary in the first century to, to, to do that, to, to write that out. Well, Colossians, the book of Colossians tells us in the New Testament that we, in a, in a similar way, have a certificate of debt written before God. It's not written in our own literal handwriting, but it is irrefutable evidence for us that we have, have fallen short, that we have sinned before God. And the Bible calls that in Colossians a certificate of debt, written as it were in our own hands, written through our own lives. You know, it's interesting when you look through Scripture, 
There are a variety of words used to describe sin. We only have that one word, don't we? We, we sin. Sometimes we try to gloss it over and say, I made a mistake. But, but usually we just kind of use that word sin, at least in a Christian context. And there are not a whole lot of other words to use for it. Well, in the Old Testament language, especially uh, in the Hebrew, there were numerous words that could be used to describe sin. Not just that one word, but an additional few words as well. And when we get to Psalm chapter 32, here's the interesting thing, that you see three of those words for sin used by King David. Now, when David uses these words, he's using them in the context of his adulterous affair that he had with Bathsheba, right? He'd committed adultery. He was unfaithful to, to, uh, to God. He was unfaithful to his own spouse. He was unfaithful to Bathsheba's uh, family as a result as well. David would be confronted with, with that sin. He would confess that sin. Well, in Psalm chapter 32, he's kind of going back, and David's looking at it. And it's interesting because in verse 5 in that chapter, we'll bring it up here and take a look. David uses three words to describe what he had done before God. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And the Hebrew word selah, which just means dwell on this or think about this. David uses three words to describe sin. One is the literal English word sin, and it just simply means to, 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 to fall short, to, to fail to measure up. That's, that's what that Hebrew word there for sin literally means. The word iniquity takes it a step further. Iniquity is to have premeditated sin in your heart. It's, it's, it's to, in advance, ahead of time, to decide, I know what's right, but I'm going to choose to do what's wrong. I know what I'm supposed to do, but in advance, before I'm even ever, ever to carry this out, I'm going to decide in my mind that I'm going to do what's wrong as an act of my own will. It's premeditated. That's what iniquity is. David uses the word transgressions. That carries another little shade, another little nuance to what sin is. The word transgressions in the Hebrew means um, to, to have willful disobedience. It, it's somewhat to be in a circumstance where the circumstance presents itself at that moment where there's a right and a wrong. Uh, a good and a bad. And, and you didn't expect it, you didn't see it coming, but you still know what's right. And in that circumstance, you willfully choose to disobey. And those three words carry such specific meaning. Sin is to fail to measure up before the right, perfect, holy standard of God. To, to, to carry out iniquity is to premeditate it from the depths of our heart to decide, I don't care what God wants, I'm doing what I choose to do in this circumstance. And transgression is to just willfully in the midst of the circumstances, to just choose at that moment to disobey. David, in this, in this particular passage of Scripture, is highlighting an issue for every single one of us, isn't he? There are times we wake up in the morning and we desire to honor God and we want to, we want to please Him. But somewhere along the day, there's a circumstance that presents itself where there's right and wrong. And in the midst of that circumstance, we choose willfully to disobey God. In that sin, we fail to measure up. We fail to lower the bar. We fail to meet the standard of holiness that God has for us. And then there are those instances, aren't they, where we choose to just completely disobey regardless. I don't care what God says. Premeditated in my mind. Brooks, do you know what it's like to live with my wife? <laughs> if you knew what it's like to live with my wife, you couldn't have peace with her either. I don't care what she does. I'm going to treat her that, you know. Brooks, if you only work in the place where I work, you don't know what it's like in there. You can't do it right and get away with it. You'll never make it in my career. You'll never make it in my field of work. You've got to shade the truth. You've got to move the boundary lines. If you only knew, it's premeditated. I don't care what God thinks. It's going to do it my way. Transgression, iniquity, and sin.
The list gets long, doesn't it? It gets long for a lot of us. And yet we fast forward then to the cross. For us, we look back to the cross. And we see that God knew in advance what our sin would look like. And whereas in the Bible there are different terms for sin, what we find is that there's only really one word. There's only one word for rescue. And that word is Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at what Paul says. He says, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. Jesus, without sin, took sin upon Himself so that, ultimately, we, those who believe in Him, might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus took what He wasn't, sin, to make us into who we're not, righteous. I mentioned Colossians earlier. Paul says in the book of Colossians, notice what he says, In chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. That certificate of debt, which consisted of those decrees against us, was a certificate of our sin. And that sin was so hostile to us, it was such irrefutable evidence that it would justify a person spending forever apart from God in hell. That's what Paul's speaking of there. He says that it was through Jesus that God canceled that certificate of debt, and he has taken it out of the way. He's completely removed it. How did he do it? Having nailed it to the cross. (laughs) It was through the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made that we're able to see our sin dealt with. That's why when you go back to Psalm chapter 32, that psalm that I referenced earlier, when David is mentioning sin and iniquity and transgression, and he's throwing all these Hebrew words out there to try to capture what it was he did in the sight of God whenever he fell short, whenever he willfully disobeyed, whenever he, in premeditated fashion, chose to sin against God. David, when we go back to Psalm chapter 32, we find that his heart is absolutely exuberant over the forgiveness that God would give even him. That's why in these first two verses, get a sense of what he says. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, he says. And how blessed is he whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. All David could do when he sits down to pin the words to Psalm 32, having already committed adultery with Bathsheba, having already confronted by a prophet 12 months after that happened, where he came clean before God, Psalm 51 captures that for us, now all David can do is absolutely celebrate (laughs) the fact that God would see him in his sin, in his iniquity, in his transgression, and still forgive him. David says, it is a blessed thing whenever a person with such transgression, willful disobedience before God is forgiven. It is a blessed thing whenever a person who has consistently fallen short of the perfect standard of God, whenever that sin is ultimately covered. David would say it is a blessed thing when a person who even though in their life they chose in premeditated fashion to sin against the perfect holy God of the universe, how blessed it is when that person who thought all that out in advance can come to the place where that iniquity is not counted against them anymore. But all they have is the righteousness of Christ ascribed to their account. David says, man, this is a blessed thing. This is really, really, really good. And you move forward 2,000 years. And in the forethought of God, he calls together a collection of people who have experienced this. And he calls them the church. 
And he says, there will be times when you will come together as a collection of saints, not sinners, as saints, and you will remember what I've done to make you who you are. That it wasn't just a little, you know, uh, paid in full, written across a sheet of paper. No, this was a, a, an ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself in your place. And there will be times when you, as a church, collectively will come together and you'll be reminded that the most important thing in all of your life is not whether you're going to get a raise this year. It's not whether or not your team is going to do well. It's not whether or not you're going to have enough money saved up to buy a new house. It's not going to be where you're going on vacation later. None of those things are going to be mattering nearly as as much as when you come together to look back and to remember who you are, that you are righteous in the sight of God because Jesus died and rose for you. And you'll remember it through this that we call the Lord's Supper. And you'll take the bread that represents the body, and you'll take the juice that represents the blood. And if you're willing, you will remember from your mind to your heart, and out through your life, that God has done it all. <coughs> that you're not your own, that you're bought with a price. So how long is the list? Are you still counting? <laughs> how recent is the list of sins in your life? And have you experienced the joy comes from knowing that your sin is forgiven that your transgression your iniquity is covered and that that which kept you from God has been paid for because a savior saw you where you were and died in your place you know as we come to the Lord's Supper it's such a simple expression through these two elements bread and juice that our salvation is not cheap. It costs Jesus everything for us to have it. I'd like to ask our deacons that are coming to share and to deliver the Lord's Supper this morning, I'd like to ask these guys to slip out and come forward. And as we take of the Lord's Supper, you guys can come now. As we take of the Lord's Supper, let me just express up front that this is a time for those who know Jesus, for those who have made the decision to lay down their sin and to place their faith in Christ. This is a time for Christians only. Now, you may be visiting with us, and you may have a relationship with Christ. You remember the day that you turned from your sin, and you invited Jesus to come in and to take over your life, to forgive you. We welcome you and invite you to take this time with us. But if you've never made that decision to give your life to Christ, if you're still thinking that through, if you're not there yet, then we would ask, just out of reverence for this moment, according to what Scripture has said, we would ask for you to just let the plate pass. So that we as believers, as followers of Christ, not as perfect people, but as people that have been redeemed, that we might celebrate this the way Scripture speaks of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to a real church, a church in the city of Corinth. And he gives instructions as to how they are to take of the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 23 in chapter 11, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. See, this is like a mirror. This is a time of inventory for us. That a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and then drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Paul looks at their circumstance. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know, this is a time of real significance for every single believer. A time when we take of that which represents the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us. And as we, as we take of it, the Bible says to take inventory of our lives so that any sin that may be there will be quick to confess it and turn from it so that we might walk in a way that honors the Lord. And so before we take of the bread, I'd like to ask one of our deacons, Kevin Wetmore, if he would, to pray and ask God to bless the bread this morning. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, I, I, I pray just exactly what we've been talking about today, that we recognize who you are, that you are indeed God, that you are Lord, you are on the throne. And Lord, you are on the throne of my life. The, the righteous died for the unrighteous so that I have the opportunity to boldly approach your throne. The veil in the temple was torn so that I have access to you. Lord, I recognize your body and what you have just been through and rising from the dead so that, Lord, I can stand before you today as a sinner, but a sinner who's been washed clean of his sins. And I praise you, and, Lord, let us continue for our worship in all these things we pray. Amen.